You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast, a place for real conversations with people who love someone with the disease of addiction. Now here is your host, Margaret Swift Thompson. Welcome back. Today, I have learned a lot, and I hope you will feel the same way after listening to the episode. I sat in my closet recording this interview, as I always do, with a wonderful judge from Pennsylvania, as she recorded from her juror's restroom. Judge Amber shares about her experience being the presider over a drug wellness court. Meet Judge Amber Craft. The Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. I'm excited to introduce you, Amber, to my audience because I've never had anyone on from the judicial or legal system. And I think it's going to be a really interesting education for people to understand more about the resources that you offer. You do probably a much better job than I do of introducing yourself and what exactly you do in Pennsylvania. My name is Amber Kraft and I'm a judge in Pennsylvania. Generally, I'm a criminal trial court judge. So I would sit and hear criminal trials, which I think everyone is familiar with, you know, what you see on TV although it's not like that <laughs> exactly, but that's what I do. But I also preside over two treatment courts in our county. I preside over our drug wellness court and our veterans wellness courts. They're both treatment courts. So I have heard the term drug court before, but until we chatted, I didn't know the term treatment court. So explain to the listeners who, by the way, are people who love someone with the disease of addiction. So they may have the opportunity to utilize these resources with their loved ones. So what exactly is treatment court? Well, what treatment court is, it's a diversionary court. So I'll just give you an example of how the system would work for someone. So someone comes into the criminal justice system, and I would say typically our treatment court participants for drug court are someone who has accumulated a decent criminal record a lot of times they get caught dealing a decent amount of whatever. So their sentencing guidelines would be significant. Let's say, for example, they might be looking at a year to five years in prison. So rather than going into prison, they're diverted into a treatment court because what we found statistically based on evidentiary research and what they call best evidence, when we put people in jail, we don't help them. We give them treatment for drug and alcohol addiction or mental health issues, we see much better results in recidivism. And recidivism means people coming back into the system. So basically what we find is prison doesn't work, treatment does. So rather than sending these people to prison, we're going to give them treatment in the hopes that they will change the trajectory of where they're going. And the wellness courts are extremely effective in doing that. We have a very high rate of graduates and our graduates and their um, recidivism rates are very low. I mean, I can 
talk the talk about the numbers and the statistics, but then at the end of the day, I get to watch people change their lives on a daily basis in treatment work. How wonderful that must be. I wonder about the language I would use around this is, if I'm hearing you correctly, the people who are in your treatment court are people who have the disease of addiction and or mental health issues concurrent. And they are people whose symptoms of their addiction end up doing criminal activity. So in order to survive in a disease, they end up doing activities that are criminal in the legal system. Does anybody get to participate in treatment court or is it a specific set of people? Well, first of all, they have to be nonviolent offenders. So typically the people we see are people who have retail thefts, which makes sense. They're stealing things to feed their addiction or people who sell drugs to feed their addiction and not just anyone can participate. You have to apply. And then our district attorney is the one who is the gatekeeper of the program. He gets to decide who comes in and who doesn't come in. And typically we're looking for people who are high risk and high need people who are high risk for reoffending and high need, meaning they need drug and alcohol or mental health treatment or both. So that's what we're looking for. People with nonviolent offenses who meet that criteria. And then it's up to the district attorney to open the gate or close the gate, depending on whatever he's looking at on that application. So what types of services would one get if they did get accepted into the program? Is it a whole person thing? Is it just around addiction? What types of services? It's a whole person thing. So the way treatment court works is we have a team and we meet every single week. I spend my entire day on Thursday doing drug court, the whole day from start to finish. And it's a very long day. We have a district attorney on our team and she's actually wonderful. She's very experienced and very committed to treatment court. We have a public defender, someone to represent the legal needs of the defendant who's in the program. We have a mental health case manager. We have a drug and alcohol case manager. We have probation officers. And then we have a probation coordinator, the person who kind of coordinates this whole group of people. We also have a representative who comes in from the prison and he runs um, one of the prison kind of drug court programs. And oftentimes we used to have someone and we're kind of working on bringing someone back in who is in recovery and now works in the treatment field to kind of give us the perspective of someone in recovery, because most of the people on our team are not, and we want to be able to have that. So we all get together. We meet. We have two hours that we spend talking about everybody. How's so-and-so doing? How's so-and-so doing? So the case managers, they're the ones that are going to say, okay, this person, we did a level of care assessment and they need inpatient treatment. And then we have another person, okay, they need outpatient. And so, you know, we have somebody who assesses what level of care they need. Typically, we're addressing, stabilizing someone with their recovery in their addiction first. Because a lot of times, you know, we kind of have to get that stable and then we delve a little bit more into the mental health. We don't do a trauma screening right away because we find that people don't trust us at all at the beginning. So we find that in later phases of the treatment court, we, we assess trauma and, and once somebody's stable, maybe digging a little bit more into that because as I'm sure you know, there's a huge correlation between those two things. Which brings up an interesting question, Amber. Just so the audience knows, 
I see a person in your stature as a very, you know, high achieving, successful human being who I would hold in great respect. And in your courtroom, I would imagine that would be the case. And you're sitting kindly enough in this interview in your jury bathroom, which is quite humbling to know that you would take the time out of your busy schedule and actually sit in a restroom and do the interview. So thank you for that. The question that it brings up is, you know, I haven't been in trouble with the law. It would be not a place I wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable walking into. And I certainly imagine that as a person who has some sort of criminal connection to a court, to flip to believing that you're there to help them get help, not to punish them, would be a big trust issue. It's a hurdle. So there's a couple things that happen with respect to that transformation to trust from fearing the criminal justice system to trusting it. Well, the first thing that happens is people come into drug court to avoid jail. They don't come into drug court typically because they're ready for recovery. They're in, we'll we'll say generously, the pre-contemplative stage of change, correct? And they're like, I just, I don't want to go to jail. So I'm going to go do this and I'm going to go do what they tell me to do. And I'm going to get out of jail. And I'll tell them that when they walk in my courtroom, I'm like, I know that's why you're here. And I'm okay with that because I'm here to change your perception of how this whole thing works. The other thing that is an incentive for people coming in, uh, besides changing their lives, which is my purpose, they get a reduction in their charge. So when someone comes into the court, they enter a plea, they accept responsibility for the crime. And then if they successfully complete the wellness court, their felonies are reduced to misdemeanors. So felonies, your highest level of crime, they're reduced to misdemeanors and the misdemeanors are dismissed. So you avoid jail and you get a charge reduction. So people come in and they're like, this is what I want. And we're like, okay, that's, and that's a good reason for you to come in. And then we bombard them with a lot of things and we keep them really busy. They get really overwhelmed. They have to go to a meeting every day. They have to go to treatment. They have to meet with their probation officers. And, you know, we've got multiple people monitoring all of these things. And what I tell participants when they come to the treatment court, there's only two things that I really expect of you in the beginning. You have to be honest with me because if you're not honest with me, I cannot help you. If you relapse, if you screw up, you're much better off telling me than not telling me. And you got to show up. Those are the two things that we're kind of looking for at the beginning. And no one wants to be honest with me in the beginning. And eventually they realize one of the things that's beautiful about the court, we call it the theater of the court. See what happens to people who are honest and people who are dishonest. But we're also, again, we're a a treatment court team. So we expect deceptive, manipulative behavior in the beginning. We expect that. We work with that. We try to get them in treatment. We build trust relationships. And, you know, it's very much a behavior modification kind of system that we have. We have certain sanctions that we use and we try to reward behavior uh, in a positive way more than we sanction behavior in a negative way. So every week in court, you know, I'm focused on their behavior that week and really, really praising them if they're doing great and not doing so great, trying to figure out what's what's going on. And then eventually those people that come in to avoid jail, they see their lives stabilize. They rebuild relationships with their families. They hold city jobs. They get their license back or, you know, whatever happens. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute. I'm turning into a productive member of society. I, I like this. And before you know it, 
typically around two years, about the two-year mark is when we see people graduate. Like, I don't want to say they could care less about the reduction in charge, but those things that motivated them in the beginning are, are minimal compared to what they're achieving by the time they graduate from the program. So that's what I get to see. They come for the wrong reasons. They stay for the right reasons. And um, it's beautiful. They get a life they didn't dream possible, I'm guessing, at the end of the year. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. This podcast, Embrace Family Recovery, has been a joy to make. I have been introduced to some of the most interesting people, which I feel have given such a variety of experiences around the disease of addiction. I hope you've enjoyed them too. Please share the podcast with anyone you think it could benefit. Spread the word, tell people about it, post about it, anything you can do to help get more people to hear the hope in the messages of people in recovery as family members. Another thing that would be really helpful is if you could go to Apple Podcast and write a review. The algorithms matter, reviews matter, ratings matter. So if you can go on Apple Podcast and rate and review what you found valuable in the podcast, Embrace Family Recovery, it would help this grow and reach more people. You're listening to the Embrace Family Recovery Podcast. Can you relate to what you're hearing? Never miss a show by hitting the subscribe button. Now back to the show. Similar to treatment that isn't related to court, you know, when you watch someone come into treatment there's some ouch that they're uh, not able to tolerate. There's some consequence, some loss, some issue. And then with time in recovery, gain a sense of integrity and feel better about themselves. And then that builds upon itself. Absolutely. That sounds like a lot of what is happening in that two-year process. Absolutely. I, um, I always ask a question of the day in drug court. So what happens is at the beginning of the program, you're going to come in front of me every single week. You come back every week. Can I interrupt? So the theater of court, am I assuming that all of the people who are required to be in that treatment court are sitting in your area and then individually come up in front of each other? Yeah. So they'll come up. I'll talk to them. We'll talk about, okay, you missed a drug test. Drug testing is obviously a big foundation of the whole program because we got to know if people are using or not. And, you know, you missed a drug test or you missed an appointment or you know, you had a completely amazing week that you opened up with your therapist. Because obviously we don't get into the nitty gritty of what they're talking about in therapy, but their therapist will be like, hey, they're doing great opening up, you know, praise people for those types of behaviors that we of course want to see them repeat. So typically what we do is we call up the people who have done well first, and I'll talk to them about how are you staying on top of things? You know, you have all these things going on. How are you staying organized? So that kind of helps everybody else. Okay, well, they're doing these things to stay organized. So in the beginning of the program, you're going to come more frequently. And as you progress through the phases, you come less frequently. Okay. But when somebody from, we have four phases for the fourth is the final phase. When they come in, for example, this week, we had a lot of people who we have graduation in two weeks. So all the people graduating came in and I make sure I say, okay, you know, at the beginning of this program, you were a hot mess and you really struggled and here you are now getting ready to graduate. I want you to tell everybody how you got here. Or I'll say, what advice do you have for the people who are in phase one or who might be really struggling right now? What advice do you have for them? And it's like that when I say the theater of court, that's what I mean. But they also see if somebody comes up and um, for example, I call it the poppy seed bagel excuse. Somebody tests positive for opiates and they're like, oh, is that 
poppy seed bagel I ate. And everyone in my staff knows that I, I don't buy that. And, you know, and other people watch someone come up and try to like BS me and it typically doesn't work. Well, you know, every now and then, obviously I'm not all knowing, but they watch what happens when someone BSs me versus somebody that came up and said, listen, I tested positive for opiates. I used, you know, I need some help. And they're going to get two very different reactions from me and everybody's going to see how I react. So that's what I mean when I say the theater of the court. What about the families around the participants of treatment court? Are there services incorporated for them as well? No, but that is a wonderful question. And it's something that I've wanted to implement, although I'm not quite sure how to do it. I'm relatively new to treatment court. I'm um, presiding over drug court for two and a half years. And then recently at the beginning of this year, I took over veterans treatment court, which is different, but it's also um, related. We have a lot of people with substance abuse issues and PTSD, you know, a lot of the things we see in drug wellness court. So I'm relatively new getting my bearings, but one of the things that I see, you know, family support is huge. And so I would love to offer some kind of program for that. But one of the things that's interesting that I see And I know this is something that, you know, a lot of people struggle with is I see enabling parents undermine their children. And I've seen it on multiple occasions. And if I see a parent like that, I, I can almost guarantee that that person is not going to be successful. And so one of the things that I would like to do is have um, a class that would help a parent understand that, that concept. I so appreciate how passionate Judge Amber is about her drug wellness court. Sadly, as Amber shared, the resources for families are limited, and this just reinforces my passion to serve families through my business. Learn more about my business at EmbraceFamilyRecovery.com. Come back next week to hear more of Judge Amber's personal story around this family disease of addiction. Often, there's no coincidence why we end up serving people with the disease of addiction or their families. I want to thank my guests for their courage and vulnerability in sharing parts of their story. Please find resources on my website, embracefamilyrecovery.com. This is Margaret Swift Thompson. Until next time, please take care of you.